All right. I, I specifically picked this lesson for the week that the campus was gone because I actually did this as a campus devo a while back. And um, this is something that I feel very passionately about, very strongly about. And I'm just going to say right off the bat, I usually try to keep the sermons a little tidy in terms of time. And every once in a while, you know, I've gone like 35, maybe close to 40 minutes. This, I, all bets are off, guys. I'm, I'm going to try to keep it, keep it neat. But this verse, we're going to look at a passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And this verse single-handedly, like, we could spend a year on. And the Sermon on the Mount itself is one of the most amazing pieces of teaching in all of human history. And I have a quote that I want to read. If you've ever read, um, uh, I think it's Josh Maxwell, uh, More Than a Carpenter. Has anyone ever read that book? It's a great book. I'm going to read a snippet from that, which is where he just quotes someone else. Okay, And that is psychiatrist J.T. Fisher. This is what he says. If you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. And it would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimism, mental health, and contentment. And that's what psychiatrist J.T. Fisher thinks about the teachings of Jesus. And we're going to look, and so when I say the Sermon on the Mount, I mean Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to look at a tiny sliver of that, okay? But I would encourage you, Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Read through Matthews 5, 6, and 7. I'm going to read a tiny little sliver of that. And it's where Jesus gives people some commands. And we're going to read this whole section and we're going to break it down. But here is what, here's the problem with this, okay? The problem with this is it doesn't make any sense. And I'm just telling you that right off the bat. This lesson requires so much faith because I cannot make a logical argument to you that if you do the things I'm about to tell you to do, your life will be better off. Okay? It's shock, shocking. Here's what I know. I trust that Jesus knows more about relationships and human interactions than I do. I just have to trust that. And so there's going to be some things that I'm going to say in this lesson that you're going to be like, no, uh-uh, done. And I'm not going to do that. It doesn't make any sense. And I'm telling you up front, it doesn't make any sense. 
Okay? And so just stick with me, and hopefully by the end, uh, I don't know, by the end, I'm not going to be able to wrap it up. I'm just telling you, there's, there's no way to logically say, and now I've convinced you that if you live this way, your life will be better. It's actually the opposite of that. There's still going to be a paradoxical aspect of this at the end where you're like, I don't know if I want to live that way. And it's, that's just part of it. So here we're going to read the scripture, and then we're going to break it down, okay? Here we go. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. All right, that's it. This is the section we're going to be reading. And it starts with, you have heard it said, this is all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I tell you, and what they do, what, the way Jesus starts this is, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And this, was, this is biblical, okay? There's at least three times in the Old Testament where God tells the nation of Israel, hey, when you go into the land, here's the laws that you need to obey. And it's weird because he, he institutes a lot of punishments for crimes. Now, this is a little side note. This is a, this is a little tangent. I love that God tells them the crimes they're going to commit before they commit them. And then the punishments for those crimes. Because, you know, we have this kind of like utopian attitude where we're like, we'll just build a society perfectly. If anyone can build a society perfectly, it's God, right? So just build, build a society perfectly where there aren't any crimes. And God's like, oh, you're going to do all this stuff, guys. You're going to do all of this stuff. And I'm going I'm to tell you the punishments up front. And yet... He, he, he regularly says, you can't punish someone more than they hurt you. You cannot inflict any sort of punishment on someone that is more than the, what they did to you. And so we can think of this, and it was done all throughout history. The, old, you know, the Israelites did this too. If you do something to me, this is what I get to do back to you. And it's valid. You can say that stuff. But throughout the entire world, from ancient times up to now, we operate differently. We operate in, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you more. You, you know, cripple me, I'm going to, you know, think about it. I'm going to kill your brother. Oh, I killed, you killed my brother. I'm going to kill your family. Oh, now, we're, now this is escalating war where we, we are locked in revenge mentality. And God is like, we're going, to, we're going to try to put an end to that. You can never claim more, you know, more justice than, than you are due. And then Jesus says, yeah, that's what God said. That's in the Bible. But... But moving forward, because 
Because you guys messed that up really good. Moving forward, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do something different. And it's not a law. It's just me asking you to live differently. And so you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's what you're owed. That's what you're allowed. That's what you can claim as your right. But I'm going to ask you, don't do that. And in fact, he says this very challenging thing. Do not resist an evil person. He could have left it there and it would be up for interpretation for millennia, but he didn't. He gave some very specific examples of what this different kind of life is going to look like. Point number one, struck. And I was going to actually, I talked to Everett about this. We just didn't have time because we drove back from the Mac. I was actually going to have him uh, do this and have pictures of it in the sermon. But this is what Jesus says. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And so, there's a lot of debate about what this means. Does that mean that I should just stay in an abusive relationship? I don't think that's what he's saying. But, here's, here's a way to think about this. If I, I wanted to have a picture of my face up here. If I were going to approach someone, and I and had it in my mind, I'm going to slap that guy on the right cheek. I'm right-handed, so the way I would do that would be with a backhand slap, okay? And if you get struck on the right, on the right side of your face by a right-handed person, it's usually that. Which was a horrible sign of disrespect, right? And it was used all throughout history as like a demeaning way. It wasn't even meant to like injure you. It was meant to um, humiliate you. Especially in a cult of collectivist culture, everything's out in the open. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you look stupid. And now Jesus says, "Hey, if someone does that, why don't you just invite them to hit your other cheek?" Now, what does that mean? And theologians disagree on this all left and right. But one of my favorite interpretations is, I'm the guy that got slapped. Okay, backhand slap. And then I say, hey, why don't you just, why don't you just show everyone who, what you really think? Just punch me. And so on the, on, if I'm getting hit on the left side, it's either like this or it's like this. And it's like, you know what? But, but the amount of, of control that that would take, if someone just humiliated you, the amount of control it would take to be like, you know what? Why don't you just go all the way? Why don't you just show everyone how... What you really think of me? Why don't you just show everyone how violent you are? Just punch me on the, like a man. <laughs> how much control that would take? How much, how much you would need to be able to slow down your own brain and your own heart rate? Imagine how calm you would need to stay to be able to take a slap and then come back with a reply of, do it again. Now, I'm not saying if you're in an abusive relationship, stay in an abusive relationship. What I'm saying is, uh, Jesus was telling an entire culture of people that were thinking eye for an eye, if you do something to me, I'm going to do it back to you. And he's saying, but what if you don't? What if you were able to calm down? What if you were able to slow down? What if you were able to say something or do something that would 
completely disarm the other person. My question, though, is that can I slow down? Can I remain calm in the midst of turmoil? If we want to live this like radically different life that Jesus is offering us, we can't do it if we always get insanely worked up. And I, I saw people who... I don't even have time to tell the story. I, I, there's people who are videotaped doing really stupid things because in the, in the heat of the moment, they just get really worked up. They just, I, they're not thinking clearly. Their heart's racing. They're breathing heavy. They do things that later they think, man, I wish I would never have done that. But I just got, I just got out of control. And Jesus is telling us like, well, this whole thing that I'm going to do is based on self-control. And Jesus talks about that over and over and over again. What if you can slow down and remain calm in the midst of turmoil? Relational turmoil? Someone is humiliating you? Someone says something that hurts your feelings? Can you slow down and remain calm? Just the turmoil of life. When the job is crazy, when the finances are crazy, can you slow down and remain calm? The answer for a lot of us is no, we can't. And we get into some dangerous situations when we can't slow down, when we can't remain calm, when we can't ask ourselves in the heat of the moment, man, what would Jesus want me to do right now? It's easy to ask that question when we're like calm and clear and nothing bad is happening and we're in our right minds. It's so hard to ask ourselves that question when we're losing it. And yet this is part of what, what Jesus is trying to communicate. That's the shortest point. Th these two are, are going to go on for a while. Jesus says this very strange thing about a cloak and a coat, or a shirt and a, and a tunic, and a, depending on your translation. Here's what he says in the NIV. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And again, there's a lot of theological debate about what he meant. Tip, you know, one idea is it's like you had two main articles of clothing. You had kind of like your outer cloak, and then you had your tunic or your shirt or your undergarments. And if someone is trying to sue you and take humiliate you for your underwear, it's this idea of like, do you want it all? Like the bare nakedness, the exposing, like... Let me just lay bare. Let me just show everyone what is happening here, the injustice that is happening here. Why, why are you trying to sue me for my underwear? That's one, that's one theory. The, the other, but it's the same thing that I, I want to focus on. If someone is trying to come after you, if someone is saying, I'm going I'm to get you, I'm going to take you for everything you have, how much calm, restraint, self-control would it take to say, yeah, here's what you asked for, and here's some more. And in our minds, we're like, no! That's wrong, the injustice, we can't let them treat us that way. And that's why I'm saying, if you live this way, I cannot promise you that everything is going to be better off for you. Here's a picture. This is a picture of me 
in the, the last night of my studio in Ann Arbor, okay? Um, can you see that okay? So here's what happened. I was a photographer. I had this studio in downtown Ann Arbor, and the boys would come, spent, spent a lot of time there, um, and things were going well. I, you know, I, I, liked, I liked being a photographer. And, but the opportunity arose to work for our church. And I, I went for it. And so then I have this, I'm paying rent on this office downtown every month and I'm not using it. So one time, uh, I put out there to a group of photographers, a big Facebook group, I was like, hey guys, I have this office. Would, are there any photographers that would want to, like, you know, pay me some rent and share this space for me? And uh, this this one girl popped up and was like, "Yes, I would love that." And I said, "Yeah, I mean, this is like, this isn't a sublet. This is just a sharing. Like, this is just a handshake agreement. It's no no big thing. Just if you can pay me some rent, I'll give you a key to the place." And she said, great. We set up a time to come and, and look at the space. And she brings another woman, a much older woman, who has a stack of cash. And they're looking around and they're like, this is great. Here's rent from now to the rest of the year, throughout, through the year. And I went, wow, okay, thank you, great. But then, the, the truth is, guys, I, I like never went back in there. Like, I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna let them use the space however they wanna use the space, and I'm just gonna, just gonna keep doing ministry stuff. And then one day, Jen's coworker asked, hey, your husband is a photographer. Should you, could you take a picture of my daughter for this thing? And she's like, oh, sure, let me ask him. He's got a studio right around the corner. So this is months later, and we walk in to the studio, and I'm stunned. Everything, everything that I own is gone. Everything's, everything's moved. It's a completely different space. The, the, the girl that was the photographer, she doesn't even use the space anymore. The woman that she brought has moved her entire business into my office. And I, don't, and I just haven't been around, so I didn't know. I've been paying the rent, and she gave me that stack of cash, so I'm like, whatever. And then I find from all my upstairs neighbors, they're all mad at me because I'm breaking the lease by subletting. And I was like, well, that's not what this was supposed to be. And then I find out that the landlord is mad at me because I'm breaking the lease, and this woman is like really kind of wreaked havoc on all the, the other businesses upstairs, and it's, it's kind of a disaster. So I reach out to the landlord, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I, I'm, I still have a year and a half on this lease, and I'll pay it. But if you want me to move out, I'll move out. And she wrote back immediately. And she said, yes, be out by the end of the month. And so then I contact the squatter. And I say, hey, guys, uh, I, hope, I hope you enjoyed using the space, uh, but now we're, we have to leave. We're getting kicked out. So we have to have everything up by the end of the month. Please let me know uh, if that will work. And then comes like the wrath 
of she threatens to sue me in, in various ways and multiple times. Um, again, I'm a minister now. I'm like a preacher. And this woman is calling me the worst names imaginable. She's saying the worst things about me. And she wants to sue me for like tens of thousands of dollars which I didn't have as a photographer, and I definitely didn't have as a minister. And so Jen and I were just feeling like completely beat up. And we're like, God, what, what, does, what is going on here? Like, why is this happening to us? But for some divine reason, I cannot get this scripture out of my head. And I'm like, and, and it comes up, how many opportunities are you going to have in your life to live out a, an exact teaching of Jesus? Like, how many times is it going to come up where you have the opportunity to show, like, yeah, this doesn't make any sense, but I'm going to do what, what Jesus said. And so people that we love, people that we trusted, spiritual people, were like, Oh no, do not let her get away with that. And they were fighting for me. And I, and I get that, I appreciate them. None of them were in sin. It turns out, not only was she suing us, but the girl, she actually stole a bunch of my stuff. And there was like text messages of the woman telling the girl, don't give this stuff back. We're going to like hold on to it until he, until he pays us. And so I'm thinking, I could, I could go and fight you. I could fight you and I would win. You would lose. You have nothing. You're in the wrong here. And, and there's like these movie scenes that play out in my head where I'm like, I have my, like, I have like my ammo. And I'm like, you think you can win? No. Guys, the reality is, after much prayer and fasting and crying and pain, we actually paid this woman a considerable amount of money because it was true. We, we kicked her out with like three weeks notice. And, and, then, and then the thing that I like, it gets me every time I think about it. I actually called the girl and I said, you know what, I just want you to keep all that stuff you took from my office. Like, it's yours now. I'm not a photographer anymore. You can have all that stuff that you stole from me. And I remember that phone call and she was like completely like stunned and disarmed. But, the, but why did I do that? Did I need to do that? No, I did not need to do that. Did I want to do that? Not really. <laughs> but I kept thinking over and over in my head, like, how many times are you going to be given the opportunity to live the scripture out? And if you miss the opportunity now, are you going to say, the next time I'm sued, then I'll, then I'll live out the scripture? This time I'm fighting, but the next time someone sues me, then I'll live out the Bible. And I just remember thinking, like, you know what? 
So I hold on to this picture because this is the last night. We cleaned everything out. And I'm, I'm in the process of being sued by this woman. Like, it's, it's a horrible situation. And I'm like, what, like, in distraught. But I just have to think. Do, do I, do I want to live the scripture out or do I want to, do I want to follow what I want to do? Here's, here's the question. If being like Jesus means I'm going to be wronged, can, am I okay with that? Because most of the time, we want to be like Jesus, and we want our life to always get better. And we, we, we have this like new form of prosperity theology, okay? Where instead of money, it's happiness. And we're like, I, I will be a Christian if I'm happy. And, I'm, and rejoice in the Lord. I, I, I did a sermon on that. You can look it up later. But there's going to be times where being a Christian means your life looks worse. And I can't stand up here and say that that's not the case. And so I need you guys to ask yourselves, like, man, there's going to be times. I mean, even just think about Jesus. Like, could I even live like Jesus? Could I be a poor, homeless teacher who gets falsely arrested and murdered? No, I want the nice life. (laughs) If being like Jesus means being wronged, can I accept it? Paul, later when he's talking to the Corinthian church, he's like, isn't it better to be wronged? Why are you guys fighting? It's better if you're taken advantage of. And that's so foreign to us. We're like, nope. <laughs> I didn't sign up for that. But then here's, what, here's the thing. Will you recognize the opportunities when you're in them? I feel lucky now. Like we recovered. We paid her this money. I let the woman, the girl steal all that stuff. And, and then and what's funny is I can't even say that. Guys, I gave it to her. She stole it, but then as soon as I made the decision, I'm going to give that stuff to her. I I have to let all that go. I can't tell everyone how horrible she is because she stole it. Because now I made the decision, I'm going to to let that stuff go. But but will you recognize the opportunities? When when someone is taking advantage of you and you have the opportunity to do something that's like Jesus, requires Jesus-level faith, will you see like, oh my gosh, pause, pause, time out. Something special is happening right now. I'm being presented an opportunity that might not come along too many times in my lifetime where I can live out this scripture. And so here's my last point. The second mile. And this one is like the whole point of this lesson. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And you've probably heard someone preach about this. This is, this is great stuff, okay? The expansion of Rome across the known world brought some very interesting things. And one of the things that Rome was able to do very well was infrastructure and roads. And this is a stone road that is thousands of years old, so much so that it has grooves, ruts, carved into the stone by, you know, wooden and metal wheels 
over the thousands and thousands of years that this road was here. And this is totally, like, Rome was amazing for their roads, okay? And so, in addition, what they would do, and, and they made roads all over the place, they would also mark these roads with mile markers. And so here's an example. This is an ancient mile marker. And they'd be positioned regular intervals, and they did this for several reasons, but one of the weird things that this brought about was a rule, a law, where if I'm a Roman soldier and I'm carrying all my stuff back home from war or I'm headed to the front lines or whatever it is, I could see someone and say, hey, you got to carry my stuff from here to the next month. And this was the way, it was like a perk of being a Roman soldier, is that you could force people to carry stuff, but it was only for one mile. You couldn't take them like 30 miles away from their home. And so this is totally a, a normal thing that would happen. Now, I, I need you to imagine this. This goes along with what I was just saying about the girl that stole stuff from me. Let's say you are an, an ancient Israelite. And it's approaching sundown before the Sabbath. And you are going to go, you're going home. And as you're going home, imagine this road and a mile marker and a Roman soldier walking toward you. And you're thinking, He's going to make me carry his stuff that way. And I'm going to have to walk a mile that way with his stuff and then walk another mile back and then the rest of the way home and I could violate the Sabbath. And people fought over this. Like, revolts were started over stuff like this. And so you're walking and... Sure enough, the guy's like, hey, you, carry this, carry my bag, carry my shield, carry this, and walk with me. And he walks, and you, you, you could try to run away, but now you're a fugitive. And so what happens when you're forced to carry for a mile? Well, if you're like me, you're going you're gonna to hate his guts the whole mile. <laughs> You were cussing him out in your head. You were like, this stupid. You're thinking about everything you, you wish you could do as you're staring at the bat his back for a mile, carrying his stuff. And then when you reach that mile marker, you're like, ugh, I hate you. And you stomp off and you, you go the other way. And that's totally normal. He expected you to do that. Everyone expects you to do that. That's human nature. He made you do that. You can think whatever you want. You're allowed. You're free to think whatever you want about it. And then Jesus says the most stunning thing to these people. And he says, you know what? When you get to that mile marker, just keep walking. Just keep walking a whole nother mile. Now, what happens 
as soon as you cross that mile marker. So here's the mile marker. And here I am, and I hate this guy, and I think he's stupid, and I wish I could stab him in the back, and I, and I hate his kids, and I hate his stupid mom, and then I go, up. But imagine now, I go like this. And I just keep walking. Now, he's, wa he's waiting. He's waiting to hear all of his stuff fall to the ground. He's waiting for me to yell at him and say horrible things about him. And it never comes. I just keep walking. The difference between this side of the mile marker and this side of the mile marker is everything. Because this is what I have to do, and this is what I'm choosing to do. And so now, as soon as I take that next step, I've actually, I've actually freed myself from all the negativity of the first mile. I hate this guy, and now this is all on me. No one's forcing me to do this. Every step I take is of my own free will, and now I'm serving this guy. And then I get to the second, I get to the second mile marker, and I go, here you go, man. Here's your stuff. And I say, have a good day. And I just turn and I go home. The difference between the first mile and the second mile is huge, guys. Literally, the difference between this side of the mile marker and this side of the mile marker is night and day. Because this is what I'm being forced to do, and this is what I'm serving the person. And I just want you to think, about how in your life you've been here, but you've not been here. How in your life have you gotten to the end of your obligation, your duty, and you're like, done, finally, ugh. And yet you don't go the second mile. The second mile is not just, so there's two parts. It's, it's what I'm doing for the other person. I'm, I'm serving, I'm meeting needs, I'm, I'm helping in some way, and that's great. But what it's doing in my heart is unbelievable. It's transforming me every step of the second mile. Because now, who do I get to be mad at? The whole first mile, anger is like my fuel. Every step is fueled by rage. I hate this guy. And as soon as, and now, who, who do I have to be mad at? No one. How can someone go from, from being fueled by hatred to being mad at nobody in a step? Jesus is like, go the second mile. As soon as you take that step, now this is all on you. And you feel, you feel it just lift off of you. I have all of these rights and yet I'm going to just keep serving. And so here's, here's this scripture. The, just the, the four parts that we looked at. And throughout history, even though God said this to the Israelites in Exodus, in Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy, He said eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Jesus knows our hearts. And He's like, you guys can't do this. You're horrible at this. All this has turned into is a revenge mentality. It's this, you hurt me, I am going to hurt you. And Jesus says, well, what if we tried to live differently? 
What if we, what if we were hurt by people and we didn't hurt them? And so here's my three uh, takeaways. You know, it's so important. If we're going to live Jesus-style life with other human beings, it's going to be so important that we learn how to calm down. So much so that if someone hit us, we don't instinctively hit them back or run away or yell away. We, man, I feel so sad for you that, we, that this is what humanity has gotten to. Slow down. Remain calm. If we're going to live Jesus-style life, we're going to have to, on some level, be okay with being wrong. And I, that's why I'm like, I can't tell you that if you live the life of a Christian, no one is ever going to take advantage of you. They will. And then lastly, we're going to have to learn how to serve willingly. And I'll just say it. I know Steve said it, and I, I said it the, the Sunday before, but man, when Kim, when Kim needed help, poor Connor and Alyssa. <laughs> Alyssa, you were awesome. Connor was great. They didn't sign up for that. And, and I think we saw, we saw two distinct parts of that, of that service opportunity. We saw the first mile where it was hard and her, those stairs were so janky and <laughs> her stuff was so heavy. And, you know, I'll just talk about Connor. I'll, I'll let Alyssa off the hook. But Connor was like, what do I have to do? And he was sitting there and he was like, we'd be like, Connor, help me with this. He'd be like, okay. And he'd do the thing and he'd do the thing and then he'd sit down. That was classic first mile, okay? And then as the day went on, it got harder. It got less convenient. It got more troublesome. And yet, our hearts were able to connect in a different way so that we saw people go move into the second mile of serving Kim. And now you've got all of us like with this giant truck at the U-Haul place and like the, the washing machine falls on me and we're like, but we're all in it together because we're all in the second mile. And we, we moved from being forced to serve because it's my Christian duty to like, hey guys, let's help Kim. My, my, the way I want to end this is just, you have to learn how to get to the second mile. And here's the key. This is mind blowing, ready? You don't need a whole mile to get to the second mile. Okay? You don't need to spend half your day angry to learn how to let it go. And so you can get to the second mile like that if you practice living the way Jesus wanted you to. But I want you to think about it. Put that into your vocabulary. In this situation, where I'm not calm, where I am being wronged, and where I do not want to serve willingly, how can I get to the second mile? When you recognize I'm in the first mile and I hate my life right now, how can I get to the second mile? What does the second mile look like at work? You have obligations and you're like, Psh, see you losers. <laughs> but how can I get to the second mile at work? What does the second mile look like in your marriage 
husbands and wives. What does the second mile look like here at church? What does the second mile look like in your parenting? The moms, all the kids, we know. I mean, everybody on this side of the room knows, like, having babies is really hard, and you're just, like, always giving, and they don't care about you, and they just want to be fed and changed. And, and, and yet, when you see, like, at the end of a long day, like, joy, and, the, and a mom or dad is, like, really into this person. Like, I love you, even though you do nothing for me! <laughs> That's, that is second mile parenting right there. We need to learn how to get to the second mile. Living the second mile is not easy. But will you only obey Jesus when it is? Living the second mile will not always benefit you. But will you only obey Jesus when it does? Again, I said it at the beginning. I have to trust that Jesus knows more about relationships and human interactions than I do. And whereas I want to like, ugh, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. I have to trust that Jesus has something bigger and better in mind. Again, this lesson requires so much faith because I cannot logically convince you that living like Jesus will be easier make your life better. All I can promise you is this, okay? This is literally all I can promise you about the second mile life. If you choose to live this way, you will be godlier. If you choose to live the second mile life, you will show the world that Jesus is Lord of your life. And is that worth it? I, I hope it is. I want, I want to live a life that it's worth it for me. Amen? Guys, that is all I have for you at this time. James and Kelly are going to do our communion and um, welcome them on to the stage. Come on.